Estonia has probably the poster child of what's called my government as a platform approach. Basically, putting it in technological and also legal and other building blocks, and the rest of the government then is built on things like national digital identity. Hi, everyone. A very happy 2023. This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid. Today, we have with us CMC Kud, who served as the government CIO, the Chief Information Officer for the Republic of Estonia, where he led the Estonian government's digital government initiatives and transforming it from a broken Soviet-era leftover state into one of the most advanced digital government nations of our time. He is basically the founder of Estonia's groundbreaking e-residency program, which we've all heard about which is quite ahead of its time and known as one of the world's top 20 most influential people in digital government as voted by a political e-residency is about opening up services otherwise available in estonia to the wider audience globally anybody in the world can try and apply and become virtual estonian and we become an e-resident e-residency means you get the virtual identity or the digital identity like ours with that you can log in and sign stuff especially it's meant for people who want to run companies from a distance to establish an estonian company remotely you can run it remotely you can do everything around that i mean all the red tape and stuff like that never being in estonia physically perhaps we also talk about how Sim and his team use the governments as a startup approach where you follow the best practices that you see in technology scalable startups and bring it into government to design some amazing products and services for the citizens. We on purpose started to build e-residency, even if it was a government initiative, we started to build it like a governmental startup, adopting the same working methods, principles, tactics, like a startup would. For example, very small MVP, build it out, test it in the market, see if there's a fit, then iterate, scale, pivot if necessary, right? In government, that was a bit crazy because usually governments are used to that. You have to figure out about all the risks immediately. You have to cover all the aspects, have a perfect foolproof plan of whatever three years and then launch supposed to we just went live and then started seeing how does it evolve from there and then started adding the next stages and etc etc not having it perfect blew people's minds but it was necessary because we had seen how tech and startup world works so bringing a bit of that sort of same sort of attitude in was made all of the difference one of the biggest challenges that all governments, whether new, emerging, old, they face is fighting corruption. I asked him on how he and his team used specifically digital solutions to get rid of corruption in Estonia. Digital technology is so powerful in terms of fighting corruption and reducing the needs for it. Even so powerful that there are some governments who still restrain from this because of the same reason. Corruption in government happens because there's a way to to non-transparently sell some sort of privilege. Perhaps I'm simplifying it, but fundamentally, right? Give me the money and then I'll let you basically skip the queue. You can't do that if you have based digitally. If you build in the proper safeguards based on digital procedures and stuff, then the flags will go up and you can start getting rid of them. We also talk about how to use digital design solutions to overcome voter fraud, tax fraud, enable agile policymaking and best practices in building great digital government solutions. And we also discuss some golden nuggets from Sim's latest book as well. All coming up right on this episode. Stay tuned.
Team Secure, welcome to the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a pleasure to have you Thank here today. Thank you, and hi to everyone. Brilliant. Let's get right to it then. Seem you've got a plethora of background in digital government. One interesting thing we always start off with in this podcast is what's your origin story? We all love a good origin story, like how did you end up where you basically ended up? Tell us a bit more about yourself. What's your origin story? My origin story probably stems from a few roots next to each other in a way. I'm most mostly raised and grew up in already what we know as independent Estonia. I was born at a time when mm-hmm. our country was part of the Soviet Union. Then when we mm-hmm. restored independence, everything opened up in a way. And among other things, that brought really technology and internet to the country. We're talking the middle of 90s here. And I'm part of what is called Tiger Leap Generation. Tiger Leap was a program in Estonia to bring internet and computers to all the schools, basically start skilling kids. These guys who happened to be in school at the time, they are now unicorn founders or government CEOs. CIOs and etc. I was one of the first generations to really become, you know, early and embraced in technology. And this Tiger Leap started in the 90s? Yes, it started in the middle of 90s, 94, sorry, 95, 96. Netscape Communicator had just cut it out. Okay. It's, the thing is just hitting off in a way at the time. The idea with the Tiger Leap from the leaders at the time was exactly to say, that, hey, this looks like a technology of the future. We better expose our next generations to it as much as we can. They hooked up all the schools to internet and open computer classes at the time when most families couldn't afford personal computing at home yet. So we started exactly spending mm-hmm. eaves and every break we had in those classes playing stuff and just exploring this. So that's one part. I'm not a technologist myself and I'll get to that but I'm like mm-hmm. a very enthusiastic user, at least. The second part, yeah. besides all of that, I mean, I was more interested in how do countries develop, especially like from economics and economic policy side of things. That's what I ended up studying in my uni degrees. In a way, a lot of my professional career started from that part of view, and that's what led me to government in Estonia, because I was really keen to say, hey, so how can we make our little Estonia much better economically and thus for everyone living here? After working in different branches on that, you know, ministries of finance and so forth on it, I came to realization, let's say late 2000s, that if Estonia has one shot in the world, it's in everything digital. Because by yeah. that time, we already had 10 or plus years of digital buildup in the country. It was taking off big time. Combine that understanding with then my sort of early appreciation and exposure to all things tech. That's what has basically then the roots converged. And I started on a track that I'm still on today. Yeah, that makes sense. I love your shirt, by the way. For those of you who can't see what it is, but is literally wearing an e-residency shirt. I know you're the founder and co-founder of the e-residency program for the Estonian government as well, right? Just picking that apart, why do you think that Tiger Leap initiative started in Estonia of all places? I mean, there are other, a bunch of Baltic countries there, which it did not happen. Why do you think specifically in Estonia, it was the case? I think the answer is in a combination of things as it usually is in life. Look at sort of these societal or economic leaps of countries overall. It's a combination of the factors you have. The factors meaning like we already had a computer science, like research and teaching excellence space before that. Secondly, there's the structural factors. Then there's the question of, do you have to have some bright and visionary people at that particular moment in history there? The later president and at the time, our ambassador in the States, Mr. Thomas Henrik Ilves and a few others who started this program because they had this hunch that, hey, they realized that this thing is picking up in a way. So they sort of lobbied and organized and got to the point where it became a government program. So there's the leadership and individuals involved 
world. And I guess the third thing is that it also has to be somehow well designed and implemented, right? I mean, the delivery has to be there. Good ideas only don't do the trick, right? And I think in that sense, Estonia has been quite good in a sense of making stuff actually work or delivering things, even if they're not groundbreaking, but we do it thoroughly. And that takes you even further, perhaps sometimes. That's quite interesting. Let's talk about Estonia a little bit here. I know that early on, it was about putting most of the government services online, right? Digitally. And I believe that most of the services are online right now. Then you guys launched X-Road and a bunch of other things, obviously the e-residency program. And then COVID happened. Estonia almost like was ahead of the curve even before COVID. COVID pushed a lot of governments to start digitizing. When I speak to my relatives and stuff, they couldn't pay the bills online, for instance. They had to go to the place to actually do their water bills. Right now, they can just do it online. A lot of the stuff that we take for granted in the West after COVID, a lot of the smaller governments and local councils actually onboarded themselves online. Having said that, then most of the stuff is actually online already, and a lot of states are actually doing that. What is unique about the Estonian program, would you say? First of all, just echoing what you said about COVID, in a sense, if in many parts of the world, COVID was either a wake-up call or basically a rush to really reorient and rebuild service delivery overnight. And indeed, you're right, Estonia, the country continued functioning even if we had you know, restrictions of movement going on because all this had been built up and yeah. not just even by the time of COVID, but even before that. Mind you, we still had our challenges with COVID because like, you know, every crisis brings its own new special needs. So we also had to build up some solutions overnight. Mm. Like how do you handle protective gear, all the masks and stuff across the whole country, the stock piling off that or um, how do you really organize on mass vaccine registrations right stuff like that in our case we had to build some special things but i mean again our practice of doing that perhaps helps a bit secondly it really showed the value of being digital if we extend this on covid now let's talk ukraine for a second the country war currently mm-hmm. fortunately they moved a lot of their most used services online to a great platform of dia before the war and when the war happened obviously everything physical shut down mm-hmm. and services continued functioning they were able to even add new ones, for example, for all the displaced people and etc. etc. So my point being, the crisis really have shown recently that it pays to be digital because you will be resilient as a government in service delivery. And in times of utmost mm-hmm. need, I guess that's when people need you the most as a government. But the heart of the question was elsewhere. So what makes Estonia special? Well, first of all, I don't think we are that special. Like you said, I mean, there's like several countries around the world doing it. And I think there's definitely like right. a larger group of like front-running governments who come the furthest from different angles. Mm-hmm. Nobody's the best at everything. I think that's, again, like a yeah. law of economics. I think you covered some of that in your book as well, the 20 different examples of government leaders. Exactly. Right? Well, that's what even led to the book to saying, hey, look, there's so many great practices around the world that we should be exposed to. Estonia perhaps stands out for three things. First of all, it's the extent of usage and the extent of uptake of the services. Even if they are not always the best design, for example, they're still a bit cumbersome sometimes, which is like something that we need to work on or the government needs to work on. But people still use them because they even then they provide them value and the people are very pragmatic in terms of using it, you know, wanting to save time, wanting to save on bureaucracy and stuff like that. Government has had its own share in this in terms of how they have designed the services, the flow of services, the incentives around. For example, you declare your taxes online, you get your money back much 
faster. The uptake mm. is what we stand out for, and thus, but uptake means impact. If you really want to get benefit of digital country, it's not just good if you offer things online, but people have to use them. Secondly, Estonia has probably the poster child of what's called my government as a platform approach. Basically, putting you some technological mm. and also legal and other building blocks, and the rest of the government then is built on things like national digital identity. You mentioned X-Road, Wahid, like a data exchange platform. So things that really accelerated adoption of digital services across the whole government, because now different parts of government did not really have to reinvent those wheels. If I give you an example, digital entities, basically what we as users, we need to securely log in, for example. Does every agency mm-hmm. build their own? That will take time and money. Or if they can reuse a common solution, a common platform, well, they focus their effort on churning their process into a digital one. So their service into a digitally available one. The platforms really accelerate without journey and the extent the platforms are reused across the government I think that's what makes us stand out and perhaps a third thing is trust and the way that sort of trust has also been built into our solutions and systems and services trust issues are often things that keep governments away from going too much digital right people want more the politicians the leaders who don't get the stuff necessarily they are afraid in terms of having tech too much Yeah. whereas we see that the risks are there we have to be aware of cyber security needs we have to be aware of privacy considerations but we can build things in a way that actually cater to those risks and mitigate and manage them to like acceptable level we can build things design things in a way that they are more cyber secure we can build things in a way that you know you have control over your data if you trust government with the data building for trust has meant that people also don't have worries in using these things and to trust them with the data, they happily use them. So that mindset has been, and that approach has helped us a lot. Often countries and leaders think about, for example, things like cybersecurity as a defense thing. You have to defend against the enemy. Whereas we think about yeah. it this way, but that's an enabler. We have to be good at cybersecurity because that allows us to be digital in the way we deliver services to our people. Like a thing to do in order to be digital as opposed to the thing to do in order to stay away from digital stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of the cybersecurity then, how did you guys go about solving the trust issue in government? A lot of times, especially in the West, there is like the idea of small government and you don't want to give government too much power. They can use the data in all sorts of ways. There's a bunch of litigations and stuff like that going on against all these platforms like, you know, Facebook, Twitter and stuff like that. In the Twitter files, which came up showing how they collaborate with the FBI, share data on users and stuff like that during election. So how did you guys go around solving the issue of citizens' trust within your initiative? So one thing is what, what I just highlighted already, like in a sense that, I mean, that's been like the mindset, the way, you know, even things have been built up in the first place, both in terms mm-hmm. of uh, like process design and as well as technology. If I use one example, so online voting, Estonia is still the prime country in the world to use online voting for parliament and everything and to a great extent about half of people vote mm-hmm. this way. Lots of risks involved, but fundamentally all managed. And for example, example some of them with very nifty tricks like you can re-vote any number of times if you vote online and why this is basically to counter the risk that somebody forces you to vote a particular way whether bribes you or coerces you or whatever process change process i shouldn't say innovation process element feature right re-voting care of that in a way mm. or another example if i use technological examples digital health records okay often our 
or perhaps most sensitive mm-hmm. data is in there. But when I go to see a doctor, then the medical history is, is available or is added to. How do I trust that my health record is kept safe? Well, I don't have to blind the trust in a sense. We already early on built in a feature where I can see which doctors and who accesses my medical health record. The technological thing is that we made the logbook the log file about your data visible for you. Technologically, it's not that complicated. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful enough because that means mm-hmm. that actually you observe the government as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, as a user, you're empowered to choose in that case. In that example of digital vote, I've always been fascinated with this because it's a recurring problem within all governments, which is voter fraud. The fact that you guys can do digital voting, like you said, you know, in parliament and etc. How did you guys go about solving voter fraud issues? These are not places where someone's coaxing you to vote, as you say you've got process innovations around that you can vote multiple times but how did you guys go about solving the voting fraud issue well the core of voting fraud is in two elements one thing is that voter fraud is possible if you don't know your electorate if there's no unique way Mm -hmm. to identify and know them in a way yeah secondly if you don't know where they have an eligibility to vote which is basically the same thing though having a trusted population record or let's say like in a record of people's identity takes that's why something like, you know, up-to-date, fully trusted, secure, like, population registry is the foundation of that. And by the way, this is also right, physical right. voting. If I go to vote physically in a booth somewhere in a polling station, how do they know that I'm me? I still have to prove myself against that unique registry. And then, obviously, like, foolproof, note a tick is made that I voted already now, right? I can't go to vote again and again. All of that, if you do it stuff on paper, I don't even know how it's possible. <laughs> Basically, yeah. my point is a unique identification of people and using that and re- using that in the voting process takes care of most of the fraud and only the rest of the fraud is basically again let's say you're trying to bribe somebody to vote for you by the way fraud mm. is much easier in a physical world and especially in stuff like paper or mail voting mm. and stuff like that which is for us is crazy yeah that makes sense for yourself then so if the estonian elections are coming up you just gonna log into some kind of portal and you just choose your candidate and you just gonna select enter and log out there's some kind of like authentication layer obviously and that's it. That's how it works for you. Guys. So it's a bit more nuanced, but I mean, you can simplify it sort of like that. The way that's so secure yeah. is attached. I just mentioned two things. First of all, it's a bit clumsier, but just for extra security, voting is a significant act, right? In order to avoid things like facing or, or you know, basically phishing for wrong sites and whatever like that, then basically there's like specific so secure software client you have to download and install, issued by the government, and etc. And secondly, it's not just that you log in, but I mean, the whole Estonian, let's say, services are built up on two different sort of functions. One thing is you authenticate, you log in. The other thing is that you authorize, meaning you sign stuff or you stamp stuff in that is with mm-hmm. digital signature. Yeah. Just like in a physical voting, you get your paper slip, you do the ticks or whatever, crosses in the paper, then you close and then it's been sealed and then you enter it into like a box, right? The signature does the same yeah. thing, effectively. It closes your vote into a digital encrypted envelope and that envelope is then mm-hmm. sent away to registry of votes. And then when stuff happens, is it so when it's, how is it anonymized? When it's voting time, basically polls close, right? It's, you know, opening the votes mathematically and then your individual credentials and then separated so that part of the key separated from the actual yeah. vote and the content just like in an actual world mm. voting and physically people don't just count the paper slips and the ticks right they don't know who i made it a bit sort of more complicated but it's perhaps important in the sense that i mean that's exactly very well thought of how you mimic but in a secure way because it has to be equal to what happens in the physical booth but again it's similar security that's interesting and i wanted to belabor this point because a lot of our listeners 
listeners that are living in countries, I mean, even if you live in the US, basically, and Trump would tell you that, you know, there's voter fraud in the last elections and stuff like that. I think it's very important for us to realize, okay, if we're doing digital solutions for e-voting and voter fraud, basically, what does it kind of look like? And just to finish this point off, so when you put your digital signature, how do you put it? Is it just like a click and then you say that this is in my digital signature here? Can someone else do that for you? What are the kind of prevention? So the way both authentication, meaning your login, essentially, and also the authorization of signatures work is that think about like a bank card, ATM card or something, right? Basically, you have to have two things in order to log in or authorize things. You have to have that entity as a yeah. token. For example, we have still the old sort of smart card option or we have a mobile ID option or there's also, let's say now an app-based mm-hmm. smart ID option out there. There's like different options how the token can be. Basically, something that holds your key, so to speak. And then it's something secret you have to know, like another factor, right? As it's technically called, that then ensures yeah. that you are authorized to use that key to then do something. So that's like a pin. Like in an ATM card, there's a mm-hmm. card and pin that does the okay. mobile ID or whatever like that. And then your secret pin and you enter that pin and then you attach the signature, for example, or only then the connection is for you to log in. It's like 2FA, yeah, basically. basically. Two-factor yeah. I mean, look, you can add even third factors if you wish. You can add biometry on top of this and never like that. But it's, it's the same logic. That's the thing. Nobody should know your pins ever. <laughs> Just like with a bank card. Of course, yeah. That's pretty cool. It's basically 2FA or even 3FA and then it's all digital. You can vote again and all these counting and stuff like that is all happens at that database layer, basically. Yeah. It's all kind of automated. And so for and us, it's like very that. relevant um, because we are now, what, a month and 10 days away from the next election? All right. Okay. All the best. All the best. It's going to be a true test, basically. That sounds great. Let's shift gears a little bit. I know that you've had immense amount of experience, like literally on the ground experience of how to build things in digital government, specifically with the e-residency program and a lot more stuff. I'm very curious on a tactical level, how did you guys go about creating the e-residency program, for instance? Walk me through like, how did you do this visioning exercise? What sort of project management principles were you following? Were you doing like a bit of agile and stuff like that? How did you guys execute? How did you guys break into teams and resource? Tell me more about the kind of tactical stuff for those who are more interested in the meat of things of how did you guys do it? We should first perhaps start a bit to see what e-residence is about because that frames the rest of the, yeah, the yeah. story in a way. E-residency is about opening up services otherwise available in Estonia to the wider audience globally, right? So anybody in the world can try and apply and become virtual Estonian and we become an e-resident. E-residency means you get the virtual identity or the digital identity like ours, so like a smart, for example. With mm-hmm. that, you can log in and sign stuff. Especially, it's meant for people who want to run companies from a distance. So you start an Estonian company for remotely, you can run it remotely, you can you know, do everything around that. I mean, all the red tape and stuff like that. Never being in Estonia physically, perhaps, although we like you to come. <laughs> e-residency, in that sense, was more like a policy initiative than a technological one. All those services for running companies, you know, identity, I mean, signatures, stuff, these existed already. E-residency was born from the realization mm. that, look, we have these great services to run the companies and to make doing business easy. But even if a foreigner came physically to Estonia, for example, as a foreign investor and invested into company here, unless they physically moved here, there was no way they could use the digital stuff. For example, their subsidiaries had to resort to double 
processes and double books and double whatever reports and stuff because it, whenever they had a foreign investor they had to do stuff on paper with that so the very core idea was poor organization but hey look we have all this and we want all this foreign involvement the exports investors why don't we make it as easy for them to do business here as it is for locals as we started with this yeah. sort of MVP or let's say the core offering in a way then really the other co-founder Tavi got the former government CIO before me his flash of genius was to look at the big world and say but hey look wait a minute there might be a bigger opportunity behind there's more sort of movement of people as digital nomads people just want to roam the world also as professionals provide their services globally and they don't have to be bound to a location or even travel right I mean it was even pre-COVID that was happening COVID only enforced it more you can be the in Brazil you can be designer yeah. in Denmark work globally you can be consultant like I am in Estonia and still do stuff remote around the world Yeah. why don't we offer these guys a chance to be legit because oftentimes they're not trusted in a sort of digital service space through that perhaps you know, attract more companies and more revenues to the country here that was like a wild hypothesis that we started playing with like a vision if you wish what we set about to do because we realized that that's just a hunch we on purpose started to build e-residency even if it was a government initiative we started to build it like a governmental startup adopting the same working mm-hmm. methods principles tactics like a startup would for example clear very small MVP build it out test validate in the market mm-hmm. see if there's a fit then iterate scale pivot if necessary right I mean for example in government that was a bit crazy because usually governments are used to that you have to think about all the risks mm-hmm. immediately you have to cover all the yeah. aspects have a perfect foolproof full plan of whatever three years and then launch as opposed mm. to we just went live <laughs> and then started you know, how does it evolve from mm. there and then started adding the next stages and etc etc not having it perfect blew people's minds <laughs> but it was necessary mm. because we really just like we had seen how again tech and startup world works so bringing a bit yeah. of that sort of same sort of attitude in was made all of the difference and another thing which is part of it and familiar to many listeners it meant that we had to be extremely user-centric sure. everything that e-resonance has become has been built based on constant co-design and feedback loop and iteration based on what do e-residents really need and how to attract them how to onboard them how to offer them more of a value stuff like that it has grown with the users so you're doing a lot of user interviews prototype testing and all that sort of stuff with real users you look into the matrix etc etc yes that's pretty cool. And how did you guys get around? I mean, you're right in the fact that government, you know, when you spend money, you basically want a lot of ROI, you know, in that money, you don't have an appetite for failure. You can't really say it just like startups, if you look at VC portfolios, one third would go to zero, one third would maybe just break even and one third would actually be the big hits, which would make you all the money. How did you go about convincing the government stakeholders and ministers and stuff like that, that this is iterative, and there's a chance of failure? We're going to try this. Not all risks are taken into account in the first MVP. How did that conversation go? I'm quite well, so curious. There's a few things there. We didn't go with anything reckless. Mind you, we had the basis covered. Mm. We had to understand, like I said before, we were being used to thinking about the risk side of things. So we realized what it might yeah. be there. A lot of the risks don't immediately materialize. Like if you open up a small scale e-residency program, it's not like you're going to have money laundering in the first day, but that's something you have to work down the line, Correct. for example. And we worked with it successfully. We had this 
base is covered, so we are thorough in that sense. Secondly, e-residency came after 20 years of growing digital sort of pathfinding anyway. It was like a next thing in line in a sense. Our leadership was used to trying new things out and actually giving sort of chance space to experiment. Yeah. I mean, online voting, we talked about long, right? Online voting was an experiment just the mm-hmm. same back in the day to try if it works. And as it worked, then you scale it and build it and, and now half of people use it like that. Does that context of experimentation and willingness to take leadership risks, right? Look, it also helped that the prime minister and the cabinet at the time were tuned to these sort of novel things that they were looking for new things to end out with. My own particular position at the time, so I was working for the prime ministers. So that's how we worked from different angles and we brought this sort of task force together from different sides, government CIO, myself, Terry, or what else. We also were proper in launching it. That always helps. Like I said, delivery matters. And the last bit, how do you manage the government? For good or bad, most of government works are not revenue generating expenditure, right? Yeah. Something that brings you money yep, yep. in. Usually people start to pay attention. And so we didn't have to prove, like in VC world, we would have to prove like hockey stick growth and whatever like that. We had proved that it will mm, yeah. pay for itself, period. So as long as it's positive in terms of revenue mm. against cost, good. And it was going to be net positive already for with initial MVP of serving only the existing investors and guys. Mm. And what's the revenue model here for e-residency? How do you guys make money? So How does the government make money? The government makes money basically economic activity is bigger. The more there are e-residents, the mm. more they set up companies, the more these companies make money, right? The more they also pay taxes yeah. on dividends, uh, on labor, etc. Et okay. mm. So the ROI in terms of direct spending as opposed to direct additional revenue to the government budget is about five, six times every year. In mm. that sense, even if the sizes are still small, we're talking about a few dozens of millions of dollars every year like that, right? For us, that's mm. good enough. And again, the return is good. That's more than convincing in itself. Obviously, the government challenge now is to keep okay. scaling it so that you know they will grow more. So to dumb it down fully, if I am an individual, I want to set up a holding company in Estonia through the e-residency program. Once I start training, for example, I don't know, I sell stuff on eBay or give out IT services or whatever, but my holding company, limited company is basically registered in Estonia. So do I pay taxes on my activities to the Estonian government? Depends on what you do. How do you run stuff? Yeah. So good or bad, a lot of taxation in the world is still outdated because it's very territorial. So for example, if you and Wahid would reside in country X, right, you know, be it the States or be it wherever else, right, that country is probably going to tax you as an individual anyway. If you earn money from a company, yep. like a salary, that's going to be territorial and tax, not, not in a state necessarily, unless you are tax resident here. Secondly, in terms of value-added taxation and stuff like that, depends on where you generate your revenues from, right? So that's, again, is like a local and territorial thing. Estonian end comes to the game mostly, A, either you create jobs here, so you have somebody working for you here, or you take dividends out. So basically, you made a profit and you cash out. The way Estonian tax system works is that we don't tax you on making profit. We tax you if you take money out. If you reinvest also as a holding company, that's not taxed. Just the earnings after all, basically as dividends. That's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. I was just curious. I was just looking at the taxation rates in Estonia. I was like, I think flat rate of 20%. That seems quite low for Europe, which can have socialist level of taxation in some countries and stuff as I go around. I'm quite curious. How do you guys stay and do so well, even with a low taxation? Because that's like the North Star for most governments, right? That low tax, high performing well, governments. I guess this is also like a hotly debated topic, especially with elections coming now. Do we do well? Some people say that obviously we should be taxing high 
higher or different or perhaps not exactly look to be fair that we still have lots of issues to tackle with in a way all the way to social sphere we are aging as a country for example so how do we pay for care and stuff like that the core to trying to answer your question actually takes us all the way back to the beginning point of this chat in a sense one of the ways we're able to pull it off is by being digital because that allows us to be effective and efficient beyond what we otherwise would be right for example keeping less offices open because they're like people you do get bureaucracy done self-service digitally themselves yeah your cost base is much lower also we are more important like how we're able to keep the tax rates low the way it works is itself the amount of tax revenues depends on two elements to simplify the number of people paying and the percentage they pay you want to keep the percentage low you've got to have more people pay and that's the logic of e-residency as well if you see how do you make more people pay you make it easy again digital and stuff like that to pay stuff and the simple tax code also helps and secondly you can Mm -hmm. use digital means to fight fraud with better analytics for example and stuff like that that's another way to ensure for example that how did we get rid of a lot of company fraud in taxation again by smartly looking at and getting data and stuff to then know where to hit those guys who are trying to scheme the government our tax gap is one of the smallest in the world because of that this is my point of saying digital actually is a big Mm. part of the solution from different angles very small point on this but i'm always very curious about this tax fraud and cash transactions how do you solve that digitally when i'm using cash to like i have a restaurant and i just take amount in cash i don't have any digital records off that so when i pay tax i actually make it look like okay cool you know what my revenues are actually quite lower than usual is there a digital solution that you guys thought of well there's a few that? things but first of all just like even in a sort of non-digital space right all your accounting has to be backed up with receipts and stuff anyway if you run your okay. cash business in a way you gotta have them somehow paper backed up then you know with receipts and things incoming and whatever etc right it's not just enough to do stuff cash only then you have to really be cash fully somehow right secondly there are ways you can combine data together and that's really is the power of analytics if you take the restaurant business every restaurant has to be licensed if yeah. there's a particular issue that for example restaurants are very prone to tax fraud then tax agency can say hey so who are all those licensed guys and they can take pull up their tax records they can compare it to industry averages in terms of what are the basically leaks and stuff like that interesting then they know mm-hmm. whom to go to inspect more and so forth and i'm not speaking theory here for example that's been one of the ways another very fraud prone industry is construction that's been a way that tax agency has fought fraud in construction by using even this sort of simple logics and simple data in a sense to have the flags raise up if that makes sense and then to know where to inspect and take a closer look and etc etc yeah yeah that's pretty cool orthogonal to this the other things that most emerging markets not only emerging market governments but all governments have an issue with dealing is basically corruption right this is not corruption at a citizen level but i'm talking about corruption within government itself for you guys in estonia in your digital journey how did you guys use digital solution to say fight corruption or make things more transparent so people can't be corrupted specifically i'm talking about civil servants as well as you know mps and ministers yeah this is an excellent question because digital technology is so powerful in terms of fighting corruption and reducing the needs for it even so powerful that there are some governments who still restrain from this because of the same reason our former president was really the same guy who started the tiger leap stuff he's famous for saying you can't bribe a computer first of all i think for estonia look the fight to get rid of corruption and establish rule of law even predates anything digital in a way it was transparency and stuff right. and even let's say, in, in an analog world before to start on this journey for example even on paper records all of 
the property of people is public. You can go online if you want Wahid and see what real estate I own, what companies I own or I'm affiliated to, stuff like that. And you could even do that before, from, let's say, with the digital records. Now it's even easier. Like- it's like the Ethereum and crypto digital wallets where I can give you literally my wallet address and you can literally see, I mean, even more the transactions that happen in that well, wallet. You know? As an analogy, perhaps, yes, except, I mean, there's one difference in the sense that you have to trust the government database. It's like in your case, course, yeah. like decentralized or distributed trust like that. Yeah. Fundamentally, yeah. same out, same result still, you're true. One thing is the transparency built in like that, basically, that in assets, data, I mean, stuff like that is available widely. It's also very Nordic, by the way. I mean, look, in our neighboring Finland, even salaries are public. In Estonia, they're not, for example. So there you go. Secondly, if services are handled and delivered digitally, you know, services like even, like, you know, services and entail some sort of process in the back office, right? Or some sort of lines and whatever like that, then you can't mm-hmm. game or bribe that because there will be footprints of that. It can be very smart trying to delete log files, but even that can be traced and the flags can go up. You can guard it and build systems against that. So basically, corruption in government happens because there's a way to non-transparently sell some sort of privilege. Perhaps I'm simplifying it, but fundamentally, right? Give me the money yeah. and then I'll let you basically skip the queue. You can't do that yeah. digitally. Bribing and stuff, yeah. And that means that if you build in the proper safeguards based on digital procedures and stuff, then the flags will go up and you can start getting rid of them. Thirdly, but again, this is not a digital thing, but it applies in the digital world as well. It's basically no tolerance. If you're caught, there's no excuse and no exception. Yeah, that makes sense because this I've also seen happen that there's huge amounts of bribery and financial fraud that went on for companies but just because they have some snazzy lawyers and lawyers on high budgets they manage to get bail or not see the prison cell basically whereas you've got a guy who did you know caught coke one day and stuff <laughs> and then they're incarcerated right so yeah where is the kind of responsibility there you know who's a more bane to society right cool let's move on it's been an interesting conversation in terms of speaking more broadly just getting out of estonia for a bit you've obviously done this in estonia and you're involved widely across the world as well what sort of advice would you have for smaller countries there's a lot basically around asia there's a lot of them around africa latin america as well who are thinking of following the Estonian model or want to become more digital government and stuff like that, how do you think they should go about it? And what are some of your best practices, would you say? What are the kind of the lessons basically that... Yeah, well, the silly joke and the shameless self-promotion would be to say, come talk to us. Exactly what to do with digital (laughs) nation now. But it's a fair question. Let me see how to unpack this the most simple way, right? First of all, there's no copy-paste in this world in that sense. Whatever has worked in Estonia may not work elsewhere. You can't like take a model somehow that somebody's asked for and then place it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. The governance, the content processes, the legacy Fair. level will be so much different. But you can still sometimes transfer some solutions. You can transfer some policy lessons. You can transfer some principles of and then some practice, really, right? A lot of, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of the practice. You asked about e-residency and the tactical and the practice stuff. That's universal, mm-hmm. good methods of getting stuff done. I mean, these you can learn and yeah. transplant and, and so forth. But you can't copy. You can try to learn and then redo or co-create into your context. Secondly, Digital Nation and myself, we mostly now work in African 
Middle East, some other countries as well, but that's the core of us. But that's where we see the next challenges in this digital government space globally. For a lot of these countries, the urgency is like, let's have some quick wins and let's you know do something real quick and then show off and, and stuff like that. But look, that's good. Yes, you need to deliver some difference and some new services fast. In parallel, you mm. got to do the hard, unsexy, tedious work of fundamentals, legal environment for digital stuff, right? The change management around, you know, implementing new solutions, training your civil servants, putting in place the fundamental technological building blocks like identity, interoperability, whatever like that. Things that never win new elections. But if you want to have a long-lasting impact, yeah. these things will bring you impact and scale. A lot of the trick here is to define the right roadmap that combines some quick wins that are visible and get you going and give you then space to really start doing the longer and harder work in terms of the fundamentals that carry you a little further down the road beyond quick wins. And what yeah. is the mix of them and what are these? This depends on the country and where you're starting from. Are you doing a turnaround? Are you starting from scratch? I mean, so that so depends on your context. Third thing, so besides the right sort of roadmap portfolio, at the end of the day, just do it. A lot of the advice we give our customers and I've given to previous colleagues around the world, there's so much of hesitance in terms of getting going. Just like we spoke about e-residence as an example before. If we had tried mm. to design and convince everyone that it's a good idea, we would have still perhaps be doing it after 10 years. You just have to start. Yeah. And I think a lot of the debates about whether and how to be digital are like people talking who don't know what they're talking about. I'm not being arrogant here because they just don't haven't had the exposure to what is a digital identity, how to safely log in and how to even sign stuff digitally. Show them. How do you show them? You have to build up like a proof of concept, a prototype, for example, or like start the journey. And then if you can show them, then the debates become much easier and not about like war of faith, but practical constructive discussions. Yeah. And that takes you ahead. So just start. You got to somehow get the budget teams to at least start with something and then build it from there. It's like the lean startup methodology that Agrees has basically, right? Whatever you have, just kind of start off and then you iterate over time. Don't let perfection be the enemy Absolutely. of progress, and, right? And look again, basically. just like you said, for the tech community and anyone sort of basically from that angle or even private sector a lot these days, it's a natural thing. For governments, that sort of attitude and practice is still like a learning curve because a lot of people in government have been trained or groomed to be different than that. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with governments and I think where it stems from is that because taxpayers' money, you think that you have a lot of concerns of how you spend it. That's why you live it with different layers of bureaucracy that okay this sign off that sign off this sign off that sign off you're also very risk averse and also you've got tons of other places you can put your money on like homeless shelters and healthcare or whatever right or build roads and bridges instead of doing just digital i think a combination of that makes government very risk averse when it comes to you're right to point it out that's again is what i would challenge first of all if you talk about here small things then you will also fail more as course, opposed yeah. to when you take like a classic waterfall example let's not even talk about tech here like a policy right some sort of benefit scheme you take two years to build this and if you haven't tested in an actual small scale in the market you're most probably going to fail anyway but much bigger this is the sort of exactly yeah. like attitude and practice that things sort of actually is more risk 
mitigating, even in a way, as we have seen through practice. Yeah. But it sounds counterintuitive if you haven't been exposed to this. Yeah, that makes sense. Related to that, I was wondering, when it comes to policymaking, how would you say we should ensure the building of technological solutions within government goes hand in hand with policymaking? Like, how do you set out a policy, get it approved, and or create other policy frameworks, infrastructure, papers? How do the two teams kind of work together? Because historically, policymaking always lags behind the actual technological building stuff, right? What would be some of the best practices would you have when you say how to marry up good policymaking with good building technologies and stuff? So there are like two sides to that. Depends on who happens to be at lead. First of all, this answer is the same. Again, like a classic knowledge in a sense that you got to be multidisciplinary in your teams with a sort of you know, skill to bring mm-hmm. together and the backgrounds to bring together. For example, if you're a policy team or a legal team trying to do new stuff in a way, at least consult your digital teams around you or the market around you. In a sense, is the stuff you're designing as a policy, is it the best possible in terms of tech or does it port? Is it like mm-hmm. digital ready? Could you be doing even better or better experience or perhaps you're even like, say, doing something stupid in terms of closing seniors off, right? Yeah. At the same time, to the contrary, if you're building like, God forbid, like a tech system or but even like a digital service, right, from service point of view, consult the lawyers and the policy guys early on because they need to tweak the existing frameworks in order for your stuff to go live. Nothing in government goes live if there's a legal base for it mm-hmm. somehow. So even in the most yeah. top-down of the government, still, I mean, legal bases and procedures and stuff prevail in a way. You need to tweak those in a smart way, have lawyers and policy guys on board. So it's the combination you got to bring those together. That is why a lot of digital teams like digital transformation agencies or like I used to run a government CIO team, we bring those both sides of people in because we need whatever sort of change initiatives. Right, right. Okay. In terms of politicians, would you say it's more helpful for a politician to give you a broad remit to a civil servant that go do the next technology big thing, whatever it is, and come to me with a budget, come to me with a plan? Or do you think for politicians, it's better to be more specific, you know, go do, I don't know, something in blockchain identity or something like this. From your experience, seeing the different successes and failures across digital government, what would you say what works better from a politician's perspective in terms of a remit and prescription? It's not just with politicians. It can be the same thing with CEOs in a company, right? The hard thing to avoid is solutionism. For companies to be successful, you have to be attuned to your product market fit to your user needs, right? Like that. I mean, the same thing in government although there's no competition perhaps, although with e-residency you can argue there is, but you still need the trust of your population. You have to serve them well. For that, you have to be tuned to their needs in a way. This is my point of saying that a good leader defines a task by the mission or by the outcome, not the sort of solution or the tech or whatever, that side of things. But just also leaving with a very broad remit might also not lead to the outcomes in the end because it can be just all over the place. Mm-hmm. The practice is different. When I spoke to 20 former peers around the world for the book of Digital Government Excellence, I was surprised to find that a lot of political leaders do give a lot of very wide mandate because they don't know better. They just do something on this digital stuff or we got your back. That's already good stuff. We got your back. Yeah. Like you said, bring us the then look if you run into obstacles and like i don't know opposition then we'll help you a lot through that and stuff like that that's great but yeah. the best leaders also challenge you 
challenge you to deliver, not with a specific technology or solution, but fundamentally deliver against an outcome and vision and aspiration. It's quite a bit of difference if you want to save government money as opposed to get rid of corruption, as opposed to build an inclusive society. Things you're doing digitally will be very different depending on the outcome and aim. A very broad remit, do something digitally means that guys on a technocrat level are left to choose. But a good leader would define at least of what yeah. direction to run to. I like the fact that how you equated the CEO's kind of remit and mandate, the politicians as well as the folks who quite sometimes it's broader, sometimes it's more specific, but it depends on the situation and what you need. It should serve a large larger vision, like a product vision or like a government vision in this case. One last question, and then we move to a quick fire round. The last question for me is successes are great. The victors always write down history. What would you say, like, and you can feel free to give your thoughts from within Estonia or outside Estonia. What are the some of the lessons that you think you can extract from some of the failures in digital governments that you've seen across? What are some of the traps that government folks on their digital journey get into and you've seen these across occurrence and patterns and stuff what are the failures and yeah what would you say from your experience yeah well let's take the next hour for that all right (laughs) (laughs) like i said we don't have it perfect but well the first way to answer you is to paint the now the opposite picture to a question you asked before you asked before that like what are some of the advice Mm -hmm. to give to countries who want to do similar stuff right the contrary picture that is to say that you're gonna fail if you don't take your local context into account you just try to transplant some tech or whatever from elsewhere you're gonna fail if you just try to do some quick win show of stuff right without properly sort of building up the foundation you know where have you seen that well many uh, places i mean basically i mean in that sense (laughs) well part of me being polite but i mean elsewhere Mm. it's not just one country cases i mean these are let's say just systematic patterns across governments third thing you're gonna fail Mm. if you endlessly think and talk and don't do stuff perhaps a few more things from estonia's perspective as well we have usually failed in estonia when we make things too complex technologically speaking now for Mm -hmm. a second so too messy as an architecture stuff like that simple solutions work best secondly you gotta keep the user in focus a lot of digital government works is also really from government perspective how to make it more convenient to do the government stuff and then it's gonna end up with services that people don't use because they're clumsy to use that never works and we've had our own sort of shares of that practice in that that bad practice in estonia as well the last thing i would bring out usually things fail if they're not properly managed back to the point of you know managing again going to the book of mine right so the the best practices from leaders around yeah, the world the number one thing differentiating them is that they all relentlessly manage for delivery of their teams and thus the whole government that's what they're keen on mm. not the big picture of visioning and next ideas and no delivering on the plans and that Execution. relates to administrative capacity i'm throwing in a buzzword like that but government people will know this word if you're not able <laughs> to get i want to use a bad word stuff done don't get stuff done yeah, you're yeah. not going to have digital government you have to have the ability to get stuff done and that's a management and the leadership issue. That makes sense. Very well. All right. Let's move on to our right. quick fire round, basically. And this is around where I give you some questions and you have to answer right away in like one or two sentences max. Um, than with one word. Cool. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you could do one word as well. But yeah, right. I try to be optimistic and open. Okay, cool. Fantastic. So what are some of the top tech government trends you're personally fascinated about? Invisible services and AI in government, automating and making things proactive so that 
that you don't have to wait to go and apply somewhere, but rather things come to you at the right time, the right place, whatever. Yeah. Cool stuff. Next one. Best book you would recommend to anyone, and it can't be yours. Um, <laughs> take the book Digital Transformation at Scale by guys who used to do British digital government stuff and now run a company called Public Digital. That's the best sort of ABC on a very practical level, how to start. Best leader in your opinion and why? Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to be very slow. The best leader is the one that gets stuff done. There are many examples, many people, many personalities in the world, but I mean, fundamentally, they have to get stuff done. Makes sense. All right, I'm going to put you out of your misery and say that that was it, Ada, <laughs> in terms of the quick fire. Amazing. Thank you very much, Seems Good, for being on the podcast. I think this has been very interesting, and I quite love the fact that we went quite deep and tactical in some of this stuff, like in terms of voting and in terms of transparency and government and policy. I'm sure the listeners will extract a lot of benefit. It was not a generic conversation i think the fact that you come with so much experience means that we had a very practical like into the meat of stuff conversation so hopefully this inspires people to basically get stuff done for wherever well, thank they you, are Aiden. and obviously thanks and good luck to all the innovation civilization crowd so wherever you might be and yeah there's lots to do on digital government and digital front still but yeah like i said just do it awesome thank brilliant you. thank you very much Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.